and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today is one of my favorite days of the year, Election Day, when we get to go to the polls with our friends and our neighbors and our families and make decisions about how we'll govern ourselves and who will lead us. There are many local races on the ballot in cities all over the state. And, of course, there are some hot races right here in southeast Michigan. I am going to start today with my usual inspiration to folks. Uh, This is something you don't want to pass up on. Uh, You should be a registered voter if you're eligible, and if you're registered, you need to go cast a ballot. This is how we determine all kinds of things about our lives uh, in Southeast Michigan and in the state, of course. Uh, and you need to be part of it. Uh, so many of our frustrations about government, about our lives, uh, stem from the decisions that get made on Election Day. You should be part of that. And it's also just this wonderful cultural experience. Uh, Every time I go to the polls, I see somebody that I know, and it's usually somebody I maybe haven't seen since the last time uh, we voted. Uh, There's something really special about showing up at your polling place, uh, seeing old friends and old faces, uh, and participating in our democracy. As I said, of course, Michigan voters are headed to the polls uh, for local elections today. And some of the hot races that we have will have really big implications beyond the individual races themselves. Think of the mayor's races in places like Warren or East Point. Of course, everybody is already thinking about next year. Thinking about 2024 and how things will turn out in those races. Uh, We have a much bigger election year next year, of course, uh, than this year. Tuesday morning, former U.S. Congressman Peter Meyer, one of only 10 Republican congressmen to vote to impeach former President Donald Trump, formerly entered the race for the Republican nomination to succeed outgoing Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow. Now, Meyer joins a field that already includes Mike Rogers, another former U.S. congressman who joined the race in September, and he already has the support of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. For Republicans both nationally and statewide, this is a race that could represent a unique opportunity to flip a really long-held Democratic Senate seat. A Republican has not won a Senate race in Michigan since 1994, when Bill Clinton was the president. So what should we make of the Republican hopefuls who say they want to take a shot next year? A little later in the show, we're going to talk with Peter Meyer about his newly announced bid for Senate. But first, we're joined by former Representative Mike Rogers, a Republican with a military and intelligence background who served seven terms in the U.S. House, including a stint as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee before he left in 2015. Mike, great to have you here. Welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hey, thank you for having me. It's great, great to be here. Yeah. So uh, I start all of these uh, conversations in the same way. Tell me why you are running to get the Republican nomination for Senate next year and why you think voters ought to support you. So I, uh, my wife and I were having coffee about a year ago, looked up from the paper and said, man, everything seems broken. Washington seems broken. Lansing seems broken. Uh, we are trying to choke each other out politically. We argued, you know, sometimes you have a capability, you have a responsibility to do something about it. Uh, and when you look at the right, tr- right track, wrong track, there's a good reason for that. And families in Michigan are hurting. And so I'm the one person that you can send back to, to, to the United States Senate, represent Michigan and Michigan voters and Michigan values on the very first day. I kind of know how the place works. I've been in business for the last seven years. All of that experience with all of the turmoil in the world, uh, when we talk about inflation and price of goods, uh, is something I can get to work on right away. So we've been uh, around the state talking to folks uh, about uh, high grocery prices and gas prices and household good prices, some $700 a month increase since Biden's took office. Uh, and they want to change. And I'm the perfect person to send back to, to affect that change uh, right away. No on the job training. Uh, so let's talk then about uh, more specifically the pillars of your campaign. What things would you like to see the U.S. Congress focused on if uh, if you're elected next year? So we we have to reform the way the government operates. It's too big. It's too bloated. We can't continue to borrow money that we don't have uh, and spend it and uh, continue to uh, cause these inflationary increases in people's paycheck. It's eating people's paycheck. So we first thing we have to do is kind of reform the government. You can't have 10 people operating a copy machine anymore back in Washington, D.C. And the average price and why this is important, the average price of a federal employee in 2022 went over $100,000 each inside the Beltway. And that that represents about 20 Michiganders on average uh, sending their average federal income tax payment in. So you have to ask yourself, is 20 Michiganders paying federal income tax worth one federal employee in Washington, D.C.? I don't get too many people raise their hands. So we just have to restructure the way uh, we operate. Good news is uh, I have done that before. When I was chairman of the Intelligence Committee at the height of the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan conflicts, I was able to cut $7.5 billion dollars out of a $78 billion budget. Uh, not easy, uh, but we didn't cut bone, we didn't cut muscle, but man, there are ways that we can change the way the government spends money uh, to, to the benefit of taxpayers. And so that's gotta be really important because that's the one thing that we can do early that will impact the price of gasoline, the price of goods, the price of groceries in your home. And so that's gonna be very important. That's gonna be top of line. Obviously the uh, international and national security issues rank up there. I'm a former FBI agent, uh, worked uh, on the streets of Chicago fighting organized crime and human traffickers and drug traffickers. Uh, I understand what how the federal government can play a more important role here in Michigan, have the Police Officers Association of Michigan endorsement for that reason. I've been out and talked to a bunch of them. We have some plans that we'll hopefully announce in the, in the next few weeks on exactly how we are going uh, to help as the federal government help our local law enforcement. We're 5,000 officers short in the state of Michigan. We have eight of the top 50 violent crime cities in America. 
think of that, in our, by population, uh, in our state of Michigan, we can do something about that. Um, and we're, we're, we'll have some concrete plans for that. We have to secure the border. We have 1.7 million people came across. We don't know who they are. Uh, with the FBI director yesterday saying, hey, Hamas is now one of the most important uh, terrorist threats we have inside the United States. You cannot continue to not know the people and the goods coming across that border. Fentanyl killed about 3,000 Michigan citizens. We have got to put a stop to that. There, there is just no reason for this. We can uh, turn that around. We can do it around, uh, turn it around pretty quickly. And then, you know, we're also on education. So we have a, we're in competition with China. Communist China is moving out. They mm-hmm. think that they're going to dominate economies around the world, including ours. They're teaching their eighth graders quantum mechanics. Uh, we are, uh, we can't read in the United States. Fifty-seven percent of high school seniors last year couldn't read at the sixth grade level. That is, we are failing this generation of children. Uh, We can turn that around. We can help at the federal level turn that around. We can also help welfare recipients go on reading reclamation programs so that they can get off of welfare. Same with prisoners on early release. You want to get out early? You have to go through a reading reclamation program. Most prisoners are reading uh, at the fourth grade level. We must change that trajectory if we're going to compete with China. The list is long, hmm. uh, but I uh, I can get started on day one to get at yeah, the list. So, so uh, you mentioned the size of government and the spending, uh, the overspending that we see in Washington. And I, I, I always ask Republicans when they bring that up about the tax cuts that they themselves have proposed and passed. $10 trillion is the cost of the tax cuts that Donald Trump uh, pushed through in the early days of his uh, presidency. And of course, the sell is always that this will get the economy going and it'll, uh, it'll grow business and things like that. But it never seems to actually pay for itself. And when you look at the growth of the deficit and the debt over the time that Donald Trump was in office, it's reflective of that policy standpoint. Uh, is, is that a better place to focus than some of the things that you're talking about? No, I don't think it is. I mean, you should, they should, I wish they had uh, applied some, um, some spending discipline along with those, that tax relief. Listen, it, it, one thing about the Donald Trump time, when you look at the, the economy, the lowest unemployment for Hispanics and, and African-Americans, we had really low unemployment. Your 401k was bigger. The economy was booming. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of economic engine to that. that came to a screeching halt toward the end of it. Uh, and that's where all of that spending came in on the, the pandemic spending. And they never looked at offsets. And I think that was probably a mistake. But priming the pump, you cannot make it hard. Remember, the small businesses, the vast majority of companies in the United States are small businesses. And those are passed through. So when you just talk about taxes in, a, in kind of a general way, you miss all of these small business owners that are just getting pummeled. By, you know, and it makes it harder for them, A, to stay open, B, to hire people. All of the things that we want to have happen gets harder with complicated taxes and tax, uh, a tax code that I argue is well out of date. I, I would try to reform the tax code, too, make it easier, flatter, fairer, I think would be good for everybody and good for the government. Uh, and then you got to put the government on a diet. And again, I don't buy this argument that we did, that nothing can be on the table. I was able to show that you could cut 
at the height of the conflict between Iraq and Afghanistan, almost 10 percent of the budget I was allocated. That's pretty significant. And my argument is every department, the Department of Defense, can go through this exercise and should. So, it's one of the largest so you would argue for tax cuts and commensurate uh, a belt tightening to, to, to prevent the the, the 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 overspending, but but ten trillion dollars is a lot, right? I mean, you you have to do a lot of cutting uh, to to make up for uh, that kind of blowing that kind of hole in the revenue picture uh, in Washington. I, I okay, I, I want to move but on. I, I mean, I just think we're we can say that the tax cuts are going to uh, expire in twenty twenty five. So you have to ask yourself: Are you ready to raise taxes on small businesses all across America mm-hmm. that are already struggling to come back? Well, just, are you well? well the other question, absolutely not. But and the other we need question, to reform the way government spends money. But the I flip mean, side of that question. So Brookings projects that it would be another three trillion dollars to extend those those cuts. So I mean, the the flip side of that question is: Are you willing to blow that kind of hole in the budget? And I, I hear what you're saying about trying to cut, but you're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, I, I don't know how you would find that kind of money. Okay, I do want to. One thing you do though, you talked about that in a static form. If these companies had relief, they can hire more people. More people means more taxes. I, I, so I disagree that this right. is a static number. You can you can cut taxes and then that's a static number. You want that economic engine kicked in. And look what happened when we stifled it. I mean, it has caused problems in the economy. This is why people are hurting. This is why they're paying more at the grocery store. This is why they're upset. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I want to talk about uh, Donald Trump. You have said that the prosecution of the former president on 91 state and federal felony charges in four jurisdictions is a politically motivated DOG, DOJ waging war against the leading Republican presidential candidate. I want to start here. If a court were to convict Donald Trump on any of these charges, would you stand by him or would you stand by the fact that uh, he was convicted? You know, I'm, I'm, we're, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But I will tell you this. I have talked to a lot of senior FBI officials that I have a lot of respect for who have retired recently who say the politicization of the Department of Justice is breathtaking and it was discouraging enough for them to go find something else to do. That's a problem. And my argument on all of this is that perception in many times is reality. Um, And what we've done is created the environment where about half of Americans now no longer have faith in the Department of Justice as an even-handed organization that was only looking for criminal activity and not politicized in a way that it certainly appears today. That is a massive problem. Remember, as a young FBI agent, you're on your own a lot, mm-hmm. and you show up at doors a lot by yourself, and you flip up those credentials. If people have lost respect for those credentials, it makes the job of an FBI agent so much more difficult. And we have such challenges in trying to dismantle the the uh, the uh, drug cartels in the South that are pushing up drugs that we know are killing our kids. I mean, you think about all the big challenges. Hamas now is running around the country as a terrorist organization, I want our FBI and DOJ focused on those problems. So, so they if, just had the largest bust, by the way, in in Massachusetts, um, of uh, where they were lacing candy uh, with with uh, narcotics, uh, clearly to try to get kids, and it was a huge, massive operation. Um, and this is a problem when you talk about fentanyl in that way. Uh, it's highly addictive, very dangerous, causes death. 
let's focus on the things we know will make neighborhoods so safe. So are you now. are you saying though that that the evidence that we've seen so far in these prosecutions and potential prosecutions is just not worth the DOJ's time? I mean, are you saying that there's nothing to the things that the DOJ and state prosecutors have said that Donald Trump has has done? Listen, I'm saying that it is uh, likely. Um, when, so listen, I'm running for this, the uh, United States Senate in the state of Michigan. I focused a lot on that. But I talked to a lot of people who are afraid of the perception of what's happening. And by the way, including people who work for the Department of Justice, right? That ought to scare everybody. It sure scares me because we cannot lose the efficacy of these organizations. I, I, I guess I focus, don't disagree with that. My focus on that. My focus will be on I that. don't disagree with that. But, but I think you can, you can hold that idea at the same time that you say – that the specifics here, especially with regard to what happened on January 6th and in the aftermath of the election, are so, so surprising and so shocking that how could a prosecutor not look at this? You're a former FBI agent. If you saw behavior like this, wouldn't it get your attention? Well, listen, I've, I've answered the question. Let's let's move on. That's your opinion. <laughs> well, I think well, I'm trying again, to get your I've opinion. Just you, I've just mm. told you how people feel. And how people have expressed themselves, including former members of the Department of Justice. Okay. That's a problem. And if there's a perception problem, that is a problem. Okay. And so I think that's – if you want to have good faith in these organizations, you've got to remove that, uh, that perception problem. I think that's, that is obviously – uh, something we all ought to be concerned about. Okay. Uh, let, let's talk about the field here. Uh, there are other Republican candidates who say they should be the Republican nominee for Senate next year. Peter Meyer is one. Uh, James Craig is another. What makes Mike Rogers a better choice for voters than the two of them? Well, we've been out uh, for the last oh, about eight weeks talking uh, from uh, you know Houghton in the north to uh, all the way down to the to the uh, downriver area, and we're getting quite a bit of excitement. They want somebody who can walk in, be an adult in the room on the very first day they get there and understand that these are pressures on families that are crushing them. I'm certainly that guy. My law enforcement experience, uh, people are ready, I think, for a refocus of the Department of Justice on criminal activity that we know is killing our kids. Uh, And the notion that uh, we have to, we, we are in a competition with China. And we have to do everything we can to make every business in America competitive, number one, and every child that graduates competitive in the sense that they have to know reading, writing, and arithmetic, <laughs> which they certainly don't do today. And that combination is, uh, has allowed me to uh, – we are probably going to hit our 30,000 signature mark within nine weeks, which is just unprecedented. Yeah, Nobody's ever really been able fast. to do that. Yeah. Pardon? That's really fast. Yeah. It is fast. And you know why? Because we just had so many people around the state call us and say, we're in. We want to help. How do we do this? And so that's the uh, inspiration that we take every day, because these are long and brutal campaigns. We're not going to focus on the other candidates. We're focused on, on a solutions-oriented campaign on things that matter in people's lives. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike Rogers, former U.S. congressman, now candidate for the Republican nomination for Senate next year here in Michigan. Uh, Great to see you back on the political scene and uh, great to have you here 
uh, on Detroit hey, Today. Thanks for having me. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, we are going to talk with former U.S. Congressman Peter Meyer about his campaign for the Republican nomination in the race for U.S. Senate. Also, remember, it's Election Day. If you haven't gone out and voted, get out there and do it. Be part of our democracy. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We just heard from Mike Rogers, a former Republican congressman who says he will seek the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate next year. Now we want to hear from someone else who has announced for the race. Peter Meyer is a former Congress member from the west side of the state, a Republican who lost in the primary in 2022. He says he would like to be the next Republican senator from the state of Michigan. Peter Meyer, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on this morning. So I want to start with uh, the question I ask all candidates who announce for public office. Tell me why you're running to to get the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate seat next year and why you think voters ought to choose you. I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, in a nutshell, I am incredibly disappointed that I do not see candidates talking about how to make sure we're solving some of our long term problems. How do we regain confidence that by 2050 we will be in the middle of the next great American century and be able to escape this feeling that we have today of just lurching from crisis to crisis, of not having any long term planning and having a political class, you know, that is only looking towards maybe the end of the week, the end of the month, or at most the next election cycle. Mm -hmm. That is not how we're going to be competing with other countries and winning with countries like China if we don't get our heads around some long-term goals. And in order to do that, you need to have candidates who aren't afraid to be bold, you know, who know what needs to be done, who will share and express that vision, but also how to connect that to a pathway that is realistic and that can be implemented. That's what I'm bringing into this race. You know, I've served in Congress. I have served our country in Iraq, uh, and I'm looking for I'm looking forward to an opportunity to hopefully uh, earn the votes of the people of Michigan and serve again. So let's drill down on some of those things that you say we need to be focusing on in order to make this another great American century. What what would that look like? What are the pillars uh, of your campaign? I mean, those those pillars from a policy standpoint are number one. I mean, focusing on families, making sure that rising cost of living issues, um, whether that is healthcare, housing, education, uh, that we are implementing appropriate policies to get those in place. Uh, which I am happy to go into depth, but that'll take a very long time. But you know, it's it's all about the pocketbook uh, primarily, and that is also being impacted by heavy government spending that is leading to. Uh, rising inflation, that then the Federal Reserve is trying to tamper with rising interest rates, which are making everything from your mortgage to car payments to credit card payments more expensive. You know, so it's pocketbook number one, but then also making sure that our position in the world and our strength at home is bolstered by American energy dominance. We need to be increasing our natural gas exports. We need to be building more nuclear power plants at home that allow us access to clean, cheap and reliable energy. And we also need to be making sure that we have security above all else, because if 
if we were to underpin our prosperity um, and our global dominance, we need to be protecting ourselves here at home. And that comes down to making sure that our border is secure, that we come to an agreement on where immigration needs to be and get out of this period of just constant chaos and constant crisis and insecurity. So um, give me a, give me your thumbnail assessment of where we are now almost four years into the presidency of, of Joe Biden on those issues. For instance, uh, there are reports now that we have cut child poverty in half in this country, despite the, the kind of uh, troubling economic indicators uh, that you were talking about. Uh, we have more people uh, who are covered by health care than ever before in America. That's uh, dating back to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And, and some of these other issues that you're talking about are better than they have been, even though we do have uh, these, these uh, sort of short-term issues. So uh, what, what do you think we need to do differently than what we have been yeah. doing? You're absolutely right. I mean, we do have more folks who are covered, you know, and are on health insurance policies. Now, the biggest challenge there is the skyrocketing premiums that they've seen. You know, if you're covered by your employer, for the average family of four, that is costing the employer roughly $23,000, which some people could say, oh, that's great. My company's paying for it, which is understandable. The reality is that that is money that you otherwise probably would have gotten in salary. Right. But because it's kind of hidden on the corporate balance sheet, because it doesn't show up on your W-2 form, you know, it's still you know, a massive hit. Uh, or It's still money that otherwise would have gone to somebody in the form of a salary. And then obviously we have uh, the public plans, you know, which are heavily subsidized by the government. So you got your taxpayer dollars flowing. In. You know, so there's obviously a benefit to having more coverage. But the challenge is we've done nothing to try to control rising costs. And that has just made it even more difficult and more stark, the distinction between, you know, those who have employer-sponsored plans and those who are on, on public plans. Uh, now, when it comes to child poverty, obviously we saw you know some, some really good short-term improvements, um, and, and I'm very supportive of efforts to bolster like the child care tax credit, or sorry, the child tax credit and other initiatives to try to cut down on that. The challenge comes in when you know it's one thing to have a government program that helps bridge a moment or get somebody out of a difficult situation. Where too many of these programs wind up is they just create a dependency where once you get on it, you don't get off. And so there are some short-term benefits for sure, but if you're just locking into a longer term, this assumption that um, rather than helping somebody get off their feet, helping somebody weather a difficult moment, you know, being something to, to catch people as a net in that moment when they fall, if then we're just transferring more and more of our economy into the government sector, then you are putting those people in the whims of the government. And what the government gives, the government can take away. And I don't want the government to have that power. Hmm. So I, I want to talk about you as a Republican candidate uh, for this Senate seat. Um, in a statement to Politico, National Republican Senatorial Committee Executive Director Jason Thielman said that essentially you are not viable in a primary election. And there's worry that if you were nominated, the Republican base would not be enthused in the general election. Um, let's let's take this in two parts. That's pretty strong language. Uh, uh, but let's take this in two parts. What's your argument to Republican voters in Michigan to make you the party's nominee? And how different, I guess, does that look than it did last year uh, when you had to seek re-election for your congressional seat and, and faced this problem inside the party? 
I mean, the, the kind of establishment D.C. kind of swampy folks, um, you know, who think that they know, you know, how things work. Meanwhile, the world crumbles around them. I've a good strong amount of contempt for them. Um, but it does crack me up. I think their statement uh, there's never any any poking at the internal contradiction of, oh, this guy can't win a primary. But by the way, if he can win the primary, then he can't win the general. Or I think they also told me uh, we don't think Michigan's winnable. Um, but if you're the nom- if, but if if you're in the race, then we the, the nominee might be somebody who won't be able to win. It's like okay, guys, like. <laughs> Which is it here? Hmm. Uh, I mean, the reality is, um, you know, that some of these groups they have their chosen candidate, right? They know they, they have uh, the the person that they like who's not going to rock the boat, who's going to do what they're told. Uh, you know, that at the end of the day is not me. Um, you know, I was I was kind of forced out of my seat. You know, obviously uh, by a, a slim majority of my uh, you know former primary voters, mm-hmm. I lost by three points in 2022. But it was after you know both you know the uh, kind of Mar-a-Lago paired up with the establishment Democrats and they uh, kind of meddled in the primary from, from both directions. Uh, now my pitch is, you know, if you don't, if you do, what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten here. What have we gotten? We've gotten, you know, folks who are kind of uninspiring, who are not going to rock the boat. We're just offering, you know, kind of simple, tired, bland, you know, proposals when the chief irony is, I mean, what was it that Donald Trump brought to the Republican Party? He brought some energy. He brought some vitality. He wasn't afraid to slaughter some sacred cows. He wasn't afraid to, you know, be a little bit of a bull in a china shop. Uh, and a lot of the folks who, you know, are looking to to him for inspiration or are just bone terrified of him uh, fail to see what it was that the voters actually appreciated about what Donald Trump brought. Mm. So, so what's different about next year i mean as you point out you you narrowly lost renomination for the house seat last year uh, that was driven by trump supporters right Uh, they were more attracted to another republican candidate why won't they why won't they be next year so it'll be a little bit harder for the democrats to drop you know a half million dollars in ads boosting my my primary challenger if it's a a five six seven eight nine ten way race number one you know, and number two, uh, I think it's actually a great opportunity to have a race that'll be a lot more about the issues because it's not just a head-to-head. It's not just going to be a two-way. It takes a lot of signatures to get on the ballot for sure. I mean, we saw in the gubernatorial last go-around, um, you know, that a lot of candidates you know had signature issues that plagued them. Um, but when it comes to the 2024 cycle, I'm frankly excited at the opportunity to not just have it be, you know, a, a one-dimensional race. Uh, when you have a number of candidates, they each have to make a case for themselves. Uh, it's just a little bit harder to say, oh, well, that guy over here, he sucks, but uh, you know, vote for me. And, okay, you may lot, dislodge a vote from the one guy, it might go to the other opponent. Uh, it's a bit more of a complex dynamic, and uh, I think that makes it it that encourages folks to make an affirmative case for themselves rather than just engage in you know, the negative politicking that we've become all too familiar with. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Peter Meyer, a former Congress member and Republican who voted to impeach former uh, President Donald Trump while he was in the House. He has announced uh, recently that he is running for the U.S. Senate seat that will be open here in Michigan next year after uh, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat, uh, retires. Uh, I, I do want to talk more about the former president and, and the person who would like to be president again, uh, he will be, uh, I think, by all all measures, on the ballot here in Michigan uh, during the primary next year as well. Uh, one of the issues that you had inside your party is that you voted to 
impeach Donald Trump. Um, uh, I, I want to talk about that vote. Do you do you feel like uh, that was the right decision to make? Would you would you make it again? And why won't that hurt you again next year? No, I mean quite simply. Um, you know, when it comes to the former president, I, I don't have a black or white opinion. I still think that the actions on, on and leading to January 6th were disgraceful, um, and I voted to accordingly um, on that. That having been said, uh, you know, if the choice is down to, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, that is not a difficult decision for me. Um, you know, I think while the vast majority of the American public would probably prefer to have different options, you know, in November of 2024, uh, I will support the Republican nominee. I will do everything in my power to make Joe Biden a one-term president. I've been incredibly disappointed by how he has, uh, you know, frankly, run roughshod over a lot of norms and principles and done, in maybe far less dramatic ways, but done, you know, a lot of the same damage that Democrats accused Donald Trump of doing. Well, can, so we, if, can we stop there a second? Yeah, can you be more specific? I'm more than happy to. Oh, absolutely. Um, I am a big believer in separation of powers. I am a big believer in, in legislative supremacy that we are would be in a much better position as a country if our rules, laws, regulations, if far more of that was being you know, implemented by people that were actually accountable to the voters. Right. If the people we sent to D.C. could actually do something as opposed to having their hands tied because you have a president and an executive branch and an administrative state who takes all that power away and makes it far more difficult where there is a rule or a regulation that needs to be changed to actually hold somebody accountable to make that change. And the things that I think Biden has done that are, you know, maybe seem innocent um, from the outside because somebody may support, say, student loan debt relief, but taking 20-year-old pieces of legislation, applying a novel interpretation and using that to justify the expenditure of a half trillion dollars should rightly terrify any American, even if they, they may not pay attention to what you know, that money is going for, or they may think that money is being spent in a good direction. But the, the the door that you're kicking open, the precedent that's being established and how that could be abused by a president in the future for something you may passionately disagree with should frighten people. Hmm. At the same time, the OSHA mandates that he implemented looking to make sure to mandate you know vaccinations for employees in the absence of evidence that it would cut down on any transmission, but just the all of the different ways in which under this administration he's run over the, the that, that core idea of separation of powers uh, and basically dared the Supreme Court to stop him rather than have any prudential mind towards what is or isn't you know facially constitutional while some of the policies he's implemented with a 50-50 Senate and a very, very slim majority, I mean, the historically slim majority um, for the House Democrats in uh, the 117th Congress that I served in, uh, you know, it, it flew in the face of Biden saying he was going to be some, you know, moderate candidate, that he was going to be a transition figure, that he was going to go and be a bridge between, you know, the, the party of the past and the party of the future. Uh, I mean, instead, he had enacted some of the most progressive policies of any president since, you know, at least Lyndon Johnson, if not FDR, yeah. uh, without the mandate from the American people. So, so I guess my, my question but is... He's a nice guy who eats ice cream, right? Well, uh, but but I but I guess my my question is in the contrast to someone like Donald Trump, who whose own abuses of executive power are, are becoming more evident every day, and whose plans, if he were to win next year, are really about the expansion of of presidential power. I mean, he he has said things, uh, he's planning things that that would make the things that you're pointing out uh, about President Biden, which are policy issues, 
uh, would make them look. No, my disagreement on the petty. process. I may not think the policy is good, but you know, it's the it's the abuse of the process that concerns. But you think Donald Trump will example, abuse that process less than Joe Biden? Oh, I, I, I have been frankly disgusted by the fact that, but essentially the lack of accountability within the media towards those abuses by Joe Biden, again, because he seems like a nice guy who, you know, uh, likes ice cream, right? So he kind of gets that grandpa pass. My challenge with, with a, like, when it comes to Donald Trump, the good thing is the media actually covers him now, I think oftentimes, or, or holds him to account, I think oftentimes in ways that are, okay, well, this was not as much of a precedent change, you know, um, as as is maybe, you know, the, the kind of hyperventilating suggests. Uh, but I think that some of the former president's proposals when he talks about Schedule F and civil service reform, uh, you know, he may talk about them in ways that seem ominous mm. and scary. The reality is right now we have m- much of our administrative state just cannot be fired. You know, this was actually a big problem that the Biden administration found is they were trying to implement policies that they believed in and they 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 were not actually able to you know hire or fire or guide people that were in their direct employ right and so functionally speaking that is no longer an accountable democracy i mean if you have government folks who are not accountable to any elected official um, it's one thing if that's sure. the Supreme Court. Totally agree with that. <laughs> sure, know, but I mean, Donald Trump is talking, for instance, branch. about ways he might prosecute uh, political uh, opposition, the way he might expand uh, uh, the, the ways you can get after people uh, you disagree with with the federal government. You, that's not the same as, uh, as, as uh, trying to enact a policy about governing or 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 politics uh, as what which is what Biden has been kind of fo- focused on whether you believe he should do it with executive power or not I think there's a substantive difference in what they would do do you not I, I mean I think that very much remains to be seen because you're talking about a former president who had a you know the most serious pandemic in a century on his watch and where if you if Trump wanted to be the dictatorial authoritarian. My God, there is no better opportunity for somebody to seize power than a pandemic. I mean, that is there. That is literally one of the nightmare scenarios that um, you know far preceded the Trump administration. But where folks like myself who are worried about emergency powers and executive powers, where that was the combination that. There's a world in which right. Donald Trump or any president could have postponed elections because of a pandemic. Well, he and waited until the election to try to seize power, correct? I mean, he absolutely well, I mean, tried no, to seize power. He, he, well, I mean, he went through a, a just absolute, you know, clown car process in the post-election period um, of, of, you know, I mean, my good, I mean, I, I lived through all of that, right? Like, you don't need to inform me about sure. the idiocy of so much of that. The challenge was, substantively, none of that would have worked, right? It was more the factor of riling up, you know, kind of the, the mob violence mm. that I take serious issue with because, you know, the, the system held. The areas where there was, you know, insecurities in the system, we addressed through legislation. Um, you know, the, the John Eastman memo, like, I guarantee you that Mark Elias, the kind of Democratic super lawyer, probably read that and went, oh, man, why didn't we think of these processes? Because they had attempted to do some very same you know, disenfranchised stripping. At the same time, they were you know, talking about Donald Trump trying to steal the election and Marionette Miller-Meeks race uh, in Iowa that came down to uh, six votes. Um, they were trying to avoid seating her in Congress. So, I mean, 
I guess I've seen enough on all sides to, mm. to want a pop. Well, I, 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 think, I, think that's a hard, I think that's a hard case to make. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Peter Meyer, former congressman and now candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2024. For news that impacts your community. Music that moves your soul. And conversations that matter. W. D. E. T. Detroit's NPR station. We're back, and we've got Peter Meyer, a former member of Congress, who has announced his intentions to run for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate next year. Before we have to let you go, I do want to talk about some distinctions, perhaps, between you and some of the other people who say they want to be the Republican nominee next year. Mike Rogers, uh, also a former congressman, uh, and James Craig, the former chief of police here in uh, in in Detroit. Uh, what 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 would argue from your standpoint for voters uh, choosing you over the two of them? No, no I, I have respect for a lot of the other candidates who are in the race, and you know I think. At the end of the day, any Republican, and this is in my view, uh, as a Republican, I think any of them will be preferable to, you know, to be able to break the the cycle that we've had in this state for the past two decades of having kind of monolithic Democratic control um, uh, among our Senate delegation, which, uh, you know, Massachusetts, Delaware, you know, they those states have elected Republican senators more recently than Michigan has, <laughs> uh, and there's I think benefits to having at least a bipartisan Senate delegation. Uh, in terms of being able to negotiate around judicial nominations and uh, U.S. attorney nominations and, and try to drive things a little bit more back to the center as opposed to that getting caught up in a partisan mix. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, those each candidate's going to make their own claims. I think we probably have a lot of policy agreements. My frustration with some of them is maybe they're a little bit more in bed with the system that I think we need to be fighting against and we need to be moving away from. I mentioned the National Republican Senatorial Committee, who's you know very firmly behind Rogers and and clearly uh, by their statement, not in my camp, um, you know, because they want folks who are going to be, you know, team players going to go along to get along. And in my view, that mentality and those teams are exactly what has disgusted so many voters who just feel like Washington is out of touch, that our, the people we send there get co-opted, uh, that they you know, lose. They may have a representative, but that representative may not ultimately uh, speak with their voice or with their concerns first and foremost. They may be more concerned about keeping their job than actually doing it. Okay, uh, Peter Meyer, former congressperson from the west side of Michigan, now a candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in 2024. Really great to have you here uh, to talk about your candidacy. I'm going to make you promise that you're going to come back before uh, before the primary early next year to talk about that, how things are going. I appreciate it. I would, like, I would love that, and uh, thank you for your time this yeah. morning. It is Election Day here in Michigan and in several other states. And as residents hit the polls, to help us understand more about what the state is in doing to ensure our access to the ballot and election integrity, I'm now joined by Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Jocelyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Always great to be here. So I, I really wanted to just have you come on to, to, to check in with you for what you're taking a look at, what you're looking out for on this election day. We have more changes uh, to our election system thanks to voters voting in reforms. That, uh, that means that uh, for clerks and other election workers, things uh, could look different and, and there could be new challenges. What, what do you have your eye on today? Well, certainly this is the last day of voting for our uh, localities that are all around the state having local elections this year. That's in some ways how we have to see Election Day now, (laughs) where we have nine days of early voting. Uh And for the last week, really, communities have already seen almost 5,000 voters participating in our elections at the local level from everywhere in Oakland County to East Grand Rapids to Lansing to uh, Westland and and Warren. So it's been great to see this is the first time we've ever had early voting, which is essentially like taking Election Day and replicating a polling place in an early voting site. You get your ballot, you sign in, you count your ballot or enter your ballot into the tabulator right there. So we've been keeping an eye on that throughout the last week to make sure this pilot goes smoothly and that enables us to prepare for the four statewide, I'm sorry, the three statewide elections we'll have in 2024. Yeah. What what about election security? That has been an issue here in Michigan since 2020 and probably a little before. Uh, You've done a lot of things to make sure that the ballot, that ballot access is preserved, but also that ballot security is is preserved. Uh, Are you are you worried about any of that today? Are there things that you've done uh, to make sure that uh, that we don't have trouble? Well, you know, transparency is the greatest antidote to um, any challenges we're experiencing in terms of people questioning the security of our elections. And so we encourage people to ask questions and to explore all the secure protocols we actually do have in place at every level, at the local level, at the state level, to ensure only eligible voters are participating and that and, and we ensure only people uh, voting are voting one time. Uh, we have developed technology to ensure on, for example, the end of an early vote day or throughout a day in which there's early voting, the e-poll book, as it's called, the actual voter file is updated immediately as soon as someone votes. So we will know and the clerk will know as soon as someone votes in a community if they vote early. Hmm. And that will then ensure that even if they were attempted, going to attempt to vote twice, they wouldn't. So we've got really great security protocols in place. And the, the challenge and the opportunity for us is to always ensure we are coupling increasing access to our elections with increased security protocols. And our clerks have really done both over the last several years and even beyond. Yeah. Uh, recently, the Michigan House passed bills that would provide protections for poll workers and would also place some restrictions on AI in political ads. Uh, the first time, I think, that we're seeing lawmakers really have to think about the influence of AI on, on our elections. I wonder what you make of, of those bills. Yeah, we've been pushing for uh, Michigan to be one of the states that gets ahead of these new and emerging technologies that threaten, do threaten our election security like AI. And I think on both fronts, both of the, the security bills that passed last week through the House really reflect our need to protect the people who protect democracy. And so for the Michigan House to pass bills that establish critical protection work, critical protections for our election workers really helps us as we gear into the 2024 election cycle 
and also the bills that address the impact of artificial intelligence on our political discourse and election security, those are critical because they establish necessary disclosure requirements for candidates or groups that use AI in their election communications. Mm -hmm. And they also set criminal penalties for anyone who would use AI to intentionally deceive Michigan voters about elections through deep fakes and other types of techniques. So that's going to be really important as we prepare for 24, because we know there are foreign and domestic bad actors who want to utilize AI to interfere with our elections and confuse voters about their vote and their voice. Yeah. Uh, You and I have talked before uh, about the the new work, I guess, that that or the new burdens that Mm -hmm. are that are placed on clerks in these in these uh, because of some of the changes that we've embraced in in Michigan. Uh, I, I wonder if you can give us a sense of how confident you are that we've done enough to, to help them, to give them support uh, so that they can yeah. manage all these things. I mean, it's been a lot. We've been through a lot these last few years, <laughs> and we will continue to be in the year ahead. Uh, what's been incredibly inspiring, and in some cases an untold story to me, is how our 83 county clerks and the 1,500 local clerks around the state have, you know, by and large, stepped up to meet the moment, mm-hmm. increasing transparency, doing more to recruit election workers than ever before, really adjusting, adapting, even in the midst of a global pandemic, to manage extraordinarily high turnout elections with new rules, with new procedures. And voters have responded as well, by and large, participating at larger numbers than ever before. We've not been, of course, without our challenges, but we've overcome them to the point where I believe our democracy is stronger today than it's ever been due to, in no small part, our clerks who have dug deep and and stepped in in even, in even greater ways and with great pride to make sure our systems are smooth and clear and secure for every voter in the state. Yeah. Uh, I've only got about 30 seconds left, but I want to ask what you think you need from the legislature between now and when we start voting next year to make things easier and better, not just for clerks, but for voters as well. We need them to prioritize additional funding for our localities to ensure we have everything we need to secure our elections. And the the bills that were passed the House last week to protect election workers and regulate AI, we need the Senate to pass them as well, hopefully before the end of the year, so that we can go into 2024 working with law enforcement and election officials to implement these policies and be fully prepared for next year's elections. Okay, uh, Jocelyn Benson, Michigan Secretary of State, always great to have you here. Thanks for joining us on Election Day uh, on Detroit Today. Yes, happy Election Day. Thanks for having me. You too. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to try to take a look at the results of Election Day, including big mayoral races in Warren and in East Point and some other localities. Also, if you like the show, enjoy listening. You should be sharing it with your friends, your relatives, anyone you think would be a good member of the community that we're building here on WDET and at Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.